You're listening to another great show from the Nod Network. Find more great content at nerdod.com. This is Whiskey and Words. I'm David Olson, and I'm joined today by author Kit Jenkin. Welcome, Kit. Hello, Dave. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you for being here today. Pleasure. Kit is here today to share uh, one of his stories with us, uh, one of my personal favorites of Kit's, so I'm looking forward to that very much. Uh, and as the standard, we have got ourselves a little bottle to drink while we do so. Lovely. Today, it's a Jameson Black Barrel. We're back on the Irish whiskey for this week, because it is one that is particularly lovely. I like a little Irish in me. <laughs> he said it. <laughs> uh, so, welcome, Kit. Thank you. Uh, I know that you are a, a world traveler. As can mm. be found by your accent, first of all. Yeah, yeah. So, where are you from? Uh, I originally am from Ottawa, which is uh, the capital of uh, my home country, Canada. Moved uh, over to the UK in the in April of 2016, and uh, loving it so far. Good. Long may that continue. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I just I'm glad you're here because uh, again, I, I've mentioned this group every week that mm. I talk on here, but we met at the writing group where I've heard you share some of your work as well and I know that you were uh, you've been finalizing a a manuscript for a while that you were looking to send off publishers which is that's a short story collection right that's right cool and this is one of the ones from it yeah this is uh, one I finished uh, just a few months ago yeah very good news very good news so how long you been writing Uh, that's interesting I've been writing here and there you know to varying degrees of seriousness basically since I was maybe 10 ish but it wasn't until I was around 18, 19 that I kind of said to myself, okay, I want to do this seriously. And so um, uh, I suppose when I was uh, 21, I took a creative writing program at a university in Canada and been taking it uh, pretty seriously since then. So, yeah, off and on for quite a while. Cool. And what's your preferred sort of medium? Is it short stories exclusively yeah. or...? Yeah, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what it was. See, when I ended up going to my program, uh, like all the other good fiction writers, I thought, I'm going to write a novel. And uh, you know, I came up with a whole idea, and it was going to be great. It was going to be a great, great novel. And then I started to sit down writing, and everything just came out short stories. Right. So... Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, at the moment, it's just my favorite medium. Uh, all my favorite writers are short story writers, or at least part-time short story writers. And, uh, yeah, it's just just my favorite at the moment. Can't get enough of it. Cool. And, again, I think that it's important to, uh, to say that Kit short stories are somewhat different in terms of uh, duration than my short stories, which are very, very short. Um, I mean, yours average at least a few thousand words don't they yeah yeah most of my stories tend to be between three thousand and about fifty five hundred so yeah yeah and yours were maybe around a thousand ish yeah here and there <laughs> yeah it's, it's a bit it's yeah. a bit different very yes yeah it's a slight difference yeah definitely uh, a few words here and there <laughs> so uh would you care for a drink absolutely oh yes this is jameson black barrel and it's it's one of their newer ones and i i tried it at a whiskey festival last year and it was just really really nice so drop in there lovely thank you dave my pleasure so what's the irish for cheers Ooh. Oh, i don't know 
could do it with an accent, but I'm not going to. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. I love how mellow and sweet that is. Yeah, the sweetness really kind of hits you at first. When I mm. first smelled it, yeah. Mm. And it's so weird to think this whole this one is they they char the barrels twice. Yeah. And yet somehow that makes the whiskey that sweet. Yeah. When they age it. There's something almost bubble gummy about it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Thank you, Jameson. That is nice. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about writing and things. Absolutely. So, so you did a, a writing course, and that was yeah. kind of where it, it drove you with that passion to mm -hmm. to go for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, was that was there a writing that you had to do as part of that course? Did they it's like set you a, a, a task that you had to complete for right. it? Yeah. Um, it was an interesting program because it was um, uh, on the face of it just a, a master's in in English literature. So um, we were doing. Uh, you know, just general English literature seminar courses. Um, but as our kind of thesis project, all the students got to do something creative, like a novel or a collection of short stories. And uh, so right from the beginning, you're basically given the task to write a book-length manuscript, uh, basically by the time you graduate. And so, um, yeah, I was working on a book of short stories that uh, it's not this one it's one I wrote previous and uh, yeah I just worked on that for a couple of years cool yeah I think that's one of the things I, I I always ask people who've done writing courses of different styles mm. that how did that work for them because I you know I'm I'm of the believer that you can't teach someone how to write you can just teach them the, the, no, you, you can't teach someone what to write, you teach them how to write. So you mm. get the structure and you get the, the form and those kind of yeah. things. But if you don't have the creativity, then you're not going to be able to write anything. Sure. So was that, it's, it's why I'm always finding it quite fascinating because it's sort mm. of, you know, what do they teach you? Because I'm not, I'm not asking you to give me a lecture right now, of course, but just yeah, sure. that, that's the question that's always in the back of my mind. Right. Is, you know, people who go there, if you go there with an idea, can they help you craft into something greater? Mm. Um, and if so, I say everyone should go for it. Now, I didn't want to rush and jump into the story straight away, but okay. I am eager to hear the story. Sure. Um, and said I got some great questions. Well, great questions. I got some questions about it as well, which I definitely want to go through. They were so I'm wondering. Questions. Thank you. Uh, are you cool to jump into it now? I can, yeah, get started. Awesome. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, this is a short story from uh, my manuscript uh, called Regeneration. I remember Calvin and Darwin being spoken of with the same tongue. Seeing our King James Bible beside a brief, a brief history of time, and hearing my mother spurn hell and the Eucharist. My mother was a materialist, scientist, and a Unitarian. She liked that phrase embossed on Tommy Douglas's grave in the Beechwood Cemetery. Courage, my friends. Tis not too late to make a better world. She held the idea of God close to her heart. When I was a teenager, I asked her how she melded her faith with science, two worldviews which I saw as incompatible. Some things we aren't equipped to know, she told me. She often took my father and I to the Unitarian Church in Britannia. The building was made of deeply lacquered pine and had a spire covered in shingles that shot up from the low roof. 
The plate glass window behind the pulpit faced the river. The reverend would read excerpts from the fire sermons, Leaves of Grass, Capital, and the poetry of William Blake. I remember most of his telling of the parable of Jonah. When I left the church when I heard it, the image of a high ceiling of flesh would recur to me for days and days. My parents were high-ranking civil servants in the federal government, my mother working for health and my father for industry. They climbed as high on that corporate ladder as they could. Now my father worked hard, primarily to avoid backsliding into the poverty of his childhood in Wales. Without work, you have nothing, I'd hear him say. My mother's family was all government workers, and she had to live up to expectations. One morning, I went with my father to his office across the river in Quebec. I now associate the idea of work with this vista. From the suspension bridge through the passing struts, I could see the shoreline and the Domtar paper mill, a tessellation of concrete, high windows, striped smokestacks, and above a slip of space, a white plume of smoke. I was tired, withdrawn, and felt we were driving towards desolation. In the summers when I was a kid, games of soccer baseball flared up in the afternoons and burned out by evening. Friends came to my house, and when we were finished at mine, we went to, we went to theirs. We ate blood oranges in parks, and our fingers turned sticky. When night came, we all ran home to our mothers, to glowing porch lamps and pots of food. I had those nights with many friends, but one girl could never join in. I dream of Alice now. She sits in a wagon, wearing a blue dress with her mouth open. She looks like she's in pain, and I become frightened, and then I wake. The dream's the same every time. I never knew what sickness Alice had. I overheard my mother one night through our dining room's sliding doors. The proteins that bound the skin to her dermis were missing, she said. I don't know how she got this information, but it fit. She had skin like glass. If someone knocked her arm, a fist-sized scab would form. She couldn't walk too far for what it would do to her feet so she had to be pulled around in her wagon. One day she tried to walk home, only a couple of blocks from school, and her feet were so mangled and swollen, she lost three of her smaller toes, and blackness running all the way up to her knees. Her condition meant she couldn't be a normal friend. No roughhousing, patty cake, thumb wrestling. My friendship with her lacked a tactile dimension. We had to be completely cerebral. Being with her was like closing my eyes with my arms submerged in dishwater, searching for a single unseen utensil. In the spring of 1998, my grandfather died. The funeral was held in the Kingston Anglican Church near Queen's University. My grandmother, having no income of her own, moved into our third floor. She was a quiet woman, She'd often sit on the green couch in our living room, hold our Bible in her lap, and clutch its gilded pages. We weren't close, so I didn't talk to her. 
But when I passed, she'd say, Why are you still a child? Or, You'll get your milk in heaven. I'd like to say I had a precocious awareness of her vulnerability after my grandfather's death, and that by avoiding her, I avoided quickening her grief. But in truth, she terrified me. She's not your problem, my father said. She needs a wide berth, my mother said. You don't have to be in the house, you know. Maybe go see Alice. I went down the two streets to her house, this three-floored red brick with a wood gable. Her house faced mine two streets down, and some nights I could see a lamp on distantly behind the gable's windows. Her mother answered the door and showed me to the third floor. Alice was sitting on a crimson carpet facing a sunken portion of the room. The balcony door opened to tree leaves. She'd pushed her stuffed animals to the corners of the carpet so that the carpet was bare. And her legs. I remember those legs. Purple scabs crowning red welts. Connor's here, her mother said. Why? Alice said. I don't know, I replied. Her mother went back downstairs. Play house with me, Alice said. She gathered dolls in a dollhouse from a plastic trunk in the corner. This is your wife, Laura, she said, showing me a Barbie doll with its right arm extended accusingly. She's graceful, like a fish. She makes orange and cranberry scones every day and wears necklaces like a queen. She likes to wear all black and read on the floor of her kitchen. As she said this, she sat with her legs crossed, stroking the doll's hair and curling it around her fingers. She was looking plainly towards the doll, but not at it, more at the general space in front of her. Okay. I didn't know how this game was supposed to be played, so I took the doll from Alice and started pumping its legs up and down. I reckoned she was a runner, what with her athletic figure. But Alice snatched Laura back. She was upset. You don't do that to your wife, Alice said. The wings of her dollhouse swung open on small hinges. She slid swim trunks and snorkel gear onto a Ken doll. She handed him to me, and I placed him in the upstairs washroom, with his legs spread eagle and his arms above his head, as if he were celebrating. I wanted to make Laura seem just as happy, so I placed her next to Ken, with her arms raised, too. They both looked so happy in our tableau. Alice laughed. I don't know about that, she said. Then she bent both dolls at the waist and lowered their arms, so that they stood on all fours. They have a pineapple garden. They're working on it. So they're in Hawaii, I said. Give them a crocodile. Her eyes widened. Why would we do that? To eat intruders. He goes for the neck. Rip. No, she said, excited. And he should have powers. Alice had to think for a moment. He speaks fluent Dutch, she said. There's a lot of oop sounds in Dutch. Everything sounds like a slide whistle. 
Alice pressed her tongue against her two front teeth and hissed. A drop of spit ran down her chin from between the gap in her two front teeth. She stopped for a moment, wet her lips, and the hissing turned to a high-pitched squeal. I smiled, finally recognizing what she was trying to do. That's one scary pet, I said, but he's gentle. We carried on like that. We remade Ken as a geologist slash secret agent who created tools out of popsicle sticks and scotch tape. Laura became a lion tamer slash secret agent who could make asteroids fall from the sky. These were tasteful powers, Alice said. I didn't know it then, but her parents' neuroses had touched her as my parents had touched me. She heaved with laughter while slowly smacking the carpet, giggling, then lifted her arms in a cheer. I felt grand for inspiring such animation in her. You're on a roll, she said. This is more fun than I thought. I have fun. Loads, even. It's not like this at my house, I said. My grandfather just died, so my grandmother's living with us now. She sits on the living room couch asking me why I'm a kid. The pediatrician told my mom once that I should be dead, Alice said. He says he's inspired by me every time I come into his office, but he's just being nice. When I left, I saw Alice's mother crying on the staircase. I asked her what was wrong. Thank you, she said unevenly. She laughed. She hasn't laughed in years. That fall, a melanoma developed in my grandmother's eye, from a spot in her iris. This was strange, since the only sun she got were surges from the bright living room. She hadn't expressed any pain until she woke one night and sent the house up with a scream. At the biopsy, a doctor sucked fluid out of her pupil with a needle. Relatives came from Saskatoon and Toronto, asking as if she were already dead. Coming, hugging, and leaving. That fall, I took Alice to the river. I asked if she was sure she was allowed to go, if the excursion might hurt her, and she said, no, no, don't be scared. As I pulled her through the park in her wagon, she extended her arms into the Timothy, growing beside the bike path, and pointed to the water where trout mouths blinked, sending up rippling O's. I pulled her into the shade cast by two maples growing out of the embankment. She watched a flock of ducks bobbing for food as a small scab detached from her forehead and landed on her lap. She quickly picked up the scab and popped it into her mouth like a chip. At a fork in the path, we took the second way into a tree grove edged by houses. Flattened crabapples lay rotting. Spiders hung on silk threads and squirrels skittered in the leaves. We came out to a bench by the water edge and cicadas calling all around. Alice asked if we could stop. She was tired. We watched the water. The same ducks drifted down to us on the current. They quacked 
floating in groups, until one paddled to the embankment, waddled over, and quacked at me, then at Alice. Its companions sounded out in response, making a racket. It shook its feathers, and its head and eyes seemed to twitch in opposite directions. The duck was quite a sight. A two-color bill, bright sheen, a white stripe ringing its neck, and white flecks all over. Suddenly, it opened its wings, flapped two feet off the ground, then launched itself in one clean glide to the other side of the river, then slowly returned to the flock. What was that about? I asked Alice. But she had fallen asleep. When she woke, the wind shifted. She seemed confused, so I told her where she was. She told me she'd had a dream about a maggot falling out of her nose. And she squirmed and laughed in her wagon at the thought. The ducks had gone, so I pulled her down Echo Drive, up the gradient over a limestone rock face above the Rio Canal. The sun was diffused through the clouds, and we stopped there, too, and watched kayaks and pleasure crafts passing under the Bank Street Bridge. Something's wrong, she said. I turned and saw her elbows up. She was fiddling with her dress's collar snap at the back of her neck. Please, can you, she said. She unfastened the snap and opened her dress all the way to the small of her back. Redness collected around her waist and two splotches over her shoulder blades. I can't reach. Do you see it? A small black scab on the ridge of her spine. Yes. It's been trying to come off for days. Can you get it? I decided it was the thing to do. I leaned over, inspected the area, and wedged my fingernails of my thumb and index finger under the edge of the scab. But when I tried to tear it off, it resisted. It's hard, I said. Try again. I pulled so hard, the skin around the scab turned into a small volcano. It seemed like I might have to tear all the skin off her back. But suddenly the scale released. Underneath, skin white, like a drop of vanilla ice cream. I showed her the results, and she thanked me. It had been getting to her for a few days. I pulled her back home. The next morning, Alice's mother called. Did you touch her? What? She contracted an infection. The doctor said it got in through a cut on her back. I didn't do it. She screamed in the, in the clinic that you didn't. I paused. And when she spoke next, she sounded resentful. I think she likes you, she said. Thank you for that. So that's part one of what you got for us mm. today. We've got the next part to come up in a little while. But yeah, I really enjoyed that story and I really like some of the themes that you introduce that you carry throughout it mm. I think as well one of the things that I've I've noticed before in your writing and well, I like this one I like the heavy focus on Canada mm. as a setting uh, and the sort of the specifics that you describe and, and that you sort of you go throughout the section naming certain places and certain things yeah. um, 
and I, and I like that a lot. Is that do you do you do it in that way in order to kind of share your memories of of Canada and kind of like what you know about the place uh, out of like a sense of you know, national pride and or not like a nostalgia, or is it more just about adding just a richness to the story, and that's a place that you know, so it seems sensible to use it, or could it be both? Um, well, I suppose to adequately answer that question, I have to give you a bit of insight into the collection itself and why I decided to write it. Um, a few years ago, when I was living in Ottawa, I was frequently having... Um, flashes of images in my mind almost like memories but not quite uh, usually the the flashes i would get would be just something physical like a physical object like a chain link fence or a puddle in a patch of grass and these were things i recognized from my past from my childhood though I didn't really attach them to any specific memory. And a lot of these images ended up being the seeds from which a lot of these stories would, uh, would come. And in order to be, uh, I suppose, faithful to the uh, original image, because I knew that these things came from my past and my childhood, which is in Ottawa, I would have to use Ottawa and Canada as a um, uh, as a kind of matrix, I suppose, for my imagination, and uh, which I suppose might raise a question. You know, could these stories have been written somewhere else? And uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, so it's more of a faithfulness to the material. And I suppose my my own childhood, uh, from which the uh, the stories are drawn, rather than any um, any national pride, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, Canada's sitting quite pretty at the moment compared to quite a few countries in the world. So <laughs> that is true. Yeah. I would agree. Uh, I think that I the introduction that you put across for Alice, I find yeah. quite fascinating. Uh, including a character like this and trying to explain her and and her condition from the point of view of a child mm. was that was it an interesting challenge to try and do that in a mm. story this way uh, from a child's point of view um, well uh, the thing about that was the the story is based on someone I did know with a disease like this when I was when I was growing up I should say that you know, well, I did know someone like this when I was growing up. None of the things that are in the story actually occurred. And so uh, just drawing on general feelings I remember having at the time, being around someone like her with, uh, with an illness like that, but also other, other people that I've known uh, throughout my life who've had you know, a sickness or... You know, some some kind of uh, health condition that they have to deal with, and drawing on feelings of discomfort, being constantly reminded uh, of death, you know, their own coming death, uh, represented by the illness, whether it be you know physical manifestations like the uh, the the scabs that Alice gets or whatever it might be, uh, just a 
continual and I've had a lot of those experiences throughout my life just uh, uh, coming into contact with death of one kind or another so drawing on those experiences I suppose it was just a matter of um, rather than any kind of challenge it was more just you know tapping into those emotions that I felt at the time and of course writing from the uh, point of view of a child is always very interesting because you know you still have when you're young you still have a I suppose a kind of wonder a wonderment of the world you know um, things don't necessarily uh, you know once you reach a certain age things tend to flatten out to a certain extent but uh, just being uh, connecting to uh, that kind of innocence uh, in the face of death, I think, is a really interesting um, conflict thematically. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Yeah. I'd agree. Um, also, you, there's a religion and science, and their mm. sort of conflict plays a part in the the introduction of this story and how that sets our the the protagonist up. I think as well. So, I mean, how important, obviously, this story aside, as you mentioned, this is, you know, based on actual things, although not actual things. Yeah. How important do you think it is to sort of address those kind of uh, social concerns and family challenges when you're writing? And of course, because there's, a, there's a, a, a draw to always write pure fiction and the rest of it, but also there's that element of there being a commentary within it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, well, again... Um, you know, just drawing off my own life. Uh, my family was very interesting in that we belonged to a Unitarian church in Ottawa. Um, very, very lax. Uh, we didn't go very often. But um, so there is kind of a vague um, religiosity to my family, I suppose. Uh, but on my mother's side of the family, uh, my grandfather was a chemist working for the federal government. And um, so there, you know, on the one hand in my family, there's this uh, religiosity. On the other hand, there's this kind of very empiricist, analytical, science-based um, uh, worldview that, you know... Uh, and like I said, like is stated in the story, those two things are kind of like a cat and a lizard that you're kind of trying to force to live in a box uh, together at the same time and have them get along. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting conflict and one which I think uh, today um, takes on a bit of a different hue. I think today that, you know, science and religion are somewhat in... Uh, competition or um, I suppose you know the uh, analytical materialistic um, science-based metaphysics of say you know modern liberal western countries somewhat in conflict with the religious I suppose fundamentalism of you know, other countries and um, but there was a time um, basically you know, up until uh, maybe the 1950s when it wasn't really seen as a contradiction to believe in a god but also to be a scientist uh, or at least people were able to you know um, 
suspend their disbelief uh, to a certain extent. And I think one of the, the great things that science and religion just kind of have in common is, you know, they're both ways of trying to understand the world, you know, um, you know in science, you know, trying to uh, look out onto a material world and trying to figure out how it works through uh, through rationality and empiricism and, you know, experimentation and testing, whereas, you know, there's a kind of, I suppose, social and moral and philosophical uh, bent to a lot of religions that tries to explain the human world on various levels. And so, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it very polarized times today, and I think it's interesting to you know, think of a time or at least a type of person where, you know, those conflicts didn't necessarily exist. Yeah. I think it's crazy when you go back enough years, you get to a point where the only people who could read, write, and study science were religious people, were the clergy mm. and things. When you go back, you know, a considerable amount of time, but yeah, when like, you do, yeah. that they were the one and the same. We couldn't separate them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But I, I like that... that that link it reminds me is a, a friend of mine whose uh, his mother was a vicar and father was a I think he was a pharmacist or a chemist right. one of the two and it was that I always asked that question I was like well how do you how are you raised in a household where you've got these two very different worldviews and in fact how yeah. do they how do they work and they, I think the answer was just they don't talk about work at home and I thought well that's a fair way yeah, to put it I guess that's a good way to do it yeah. I suppose yeah no, I think I really enjoy the, the initial part of the story because you do, I mean, I've, I've um, had the pleasure of hearing one of your other stories where you told a, a story which was focused around, I think it was, uh, was it the passing of a family member, hmm. but again, told from a, a, a young kid's perspective yeah. and how that was going through. And I think you've got a real way of telling the stories like that, which doesn't simplify them. I think that's a big thing for people writing you know, children as characters, mm. it can be very easy to, to dumb it down and make it really simple because it's kids. Sure. But actually, they can be very complex characters, but they experience things in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that you've shown so far that you're very good at doing. Thank you. Um, well, yeah. And I'm I say I like the story a lot, which is, uh, I'm eager to hear the, the second half of what you've got. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting with kids is that we tend to think of them as innocent and, and simple, but incredibly complex people kids can be sometimes very very interesting okay so this is the second half of the short story regeneration my grandmother's cancer got worse we went to the hospital's chemo ward she was sitting in an armchair with an IV drip taped to the inside of her elbow she wore a gray cardigan, polyester blouse, a shin-length skirt, and a Tweety Bird shower cap to hide her bald spot. Her eyes had sunk into her head. What's God up to? she said, blankly. I can bring things from home for you, my father said. The Bible. None of that matters now, she replied. Alice returned to class, shrunk from the infection. Her arms were the width of canes, and she rested awkwardly on the desk level with her jaw. She sat at her folding desk with the under compartment, 
It now seemed too small for it. And when she raised her hand, she seemed vulnerable. The sky was a cement gray by recess. When the bell sounded, the whole class scuttled towards down jackets hanging on low hooks on the wall. Our geography teacher, teaching tectonic plates, said Alice didn't have to go outside, but she put on her boots and coat all the same and stood by herself on the tarmac. I wanted to play Foursquare, but the lineup to get in was too long, so I sat on the edges of the play structure's sand pit, sticking in my hand. I gripped something solid that turned out to be a clump of sand that crumbled when I lifted it. Alice approached me from the other side. It got worse, she said, after you dropped me off. Whether she was trying to blame me or was just letting me know was unclear. She didn't seem angry. But even then, I knew that how someone appeared could mean little. I didn't mean to. I didn't know it could happen like that, the infection, she said. She glanced down at the tarmac and began swaying her arms. My mom said it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you. I didn't. It's not your fault, she said. She paused for a moment before puffing out her chest. Can you come over tonight? I wanted to say yes, but it was the way her mother said Alice liked me, like I was being accused of something far worse than picking a scab. I was afraid that by having plates set in front of me by a sitting with the television and the Barbies, by raiding their fridge for cans of pop, I'd be opening myself up for an attack. No thanks, I said. After recess, there was an incident. The teacher restrained Alice as Alice brandished a pair of safety scissors. The blunt plastic blades were open. Alice's lips were retracted, showing her teeth and eyes bugged out, all white like globes. She hacked the air in the direction of Kyle, who stood two desk rows back, bewildered, his fingers touching the collar of his t-shirt. I found out later she started on Kyle because Nick, the class's huge, corpulent bully, was picking on him for being short. She'd been quiet, listening, then everyone gasped when she lunged at Kyle, as if to assist Nick with the scissors, like his weakness was something she needed to snuff out. The doctor called one morning as my father was poaching eggs. My grandmother. She was improving. My father put a Debussy CD in her boombox. In her ward, my mother squirted liquid soap into a steel bowl and diluted it for a sponge bath. Claire de Lune was muffled by the sound of water hitting the bowl edge after my mother wrung water from the sponge. I sat next to my grandmother on her mattress, trimming her fingernails with a pair of small manicure scissors. I don't deserve this, she said with her eyes closed. She seemed tired and on the verge of falling asleep. We kept on fixing her up. I don't remember when Alice stopped coming to class, but we carried on as if she'd been there. 
I went on playing foursquare and soccer baseball. I went to church. For a few months, it was as if I had erased my memories of her. Then one night, I eavesdropped on my mother, again through the sliding doors. She had to be homeschooled, but they don't have time, she said. She couldn't carry on and go to the hospital as much as she did. Colette told me her mother hired a Jordanian at Carlton to teach her fractions, five times a week, that sounding desperate. Then after not seeing Alice at all, I saw her everywhere, leaning against the guardrails along the canal, sitting in the park by the planters, in her gable, staring through the maples. She seemed healthy. Her skin was unblemished, except for a pebble-sized green scab on her left temple. I ran into her and her mother one afternoon after school. Alice, her mother said, aren't you going to say hello to Connor? Almost instantly, Alice bristled into a tight, inauthentic smile, then proceeded to ignore me. Another day, I saw Alice on Bank Street by Brent's Pharmacy. What are you doing, I said. My mom's picking me up. We're going to Tremblant. Why? To ski. You can ski? I don't know. When I saw her a week later, she said, I didn't ski. It was too risky. I thought I could toboggan, but all the hills were too steep. My mom had to tie a rope around her waist and pull me on a sled as she snowshoed. People pointed at me. I heard them laughing. That summer, when I was visiting her house, her mother showed me to the backyard, and there I saw Alice with snowshoes strapped to her feet, lifting her knees and pumping her arms to get her stance wide enough to take a step forward. I finished grade school, then high school, then went to university. I majored in philosophy. When I finished, I moved to Montreal to work as a street cleaner, picking up litter with a retractable claw. Old friends, people I'd lost touch with, asked me, what happened to you? Why have you shut down? You could have been so much more. And I didn't know how to answer. Something happened to me in adolescence. I became neurotic, withdrawn, and spent my afternoons and evenings indoors with my PlayStation and tubs of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I wondered why I bothered with school or jobs or girls. My parents were disconcerted. We were upper middle class. They expected me, with all my privilege, to be grooming myself for the future. So they stood me in front of a mirror one morning with my shirt off, holding up photographs of me taken three years before when I was thinner. You need to pull yourself back, they said. Many mornings after that, I'd stare at my reflection in the same mirror, baring teeth at it, or screaming. I like taking drives outside Montreal to a small Anglo village by the Ontario border. It has stream-crossed walking trails, a cafe beside a used bookstore, and a revitalized main street. But I like this village for a small craft shop down a sideward-sloping rural road. The shop is stocked by an artist co-op. At the back of the shop, past the dyed glasswork, sculptures made of giant mushroom caps and tables of tiny knickknacks and tiny cotton-lined boxes 
a single display. A hunk of smooth limestone with a Celtic knot carved into the top. The carving is total, so if you look through the knot, you can see through to the other side. A description on a plastic stand says, The Celtic knot was often used by the church as a symbol for eternity, or the interconnectedness of all life and flesh. In the summer of 2012, I drove to Ottawa to visit my mother. While in the car, I spoke to her on a Bluetooth headset to blow out as much conversation as possible so I could cut the visit short from three nights to two. Farmland passed on my right. The sky's blueness turned white. Long barns, grain silos, and mowed hayfields as I went by. Do you remember Alice, my mother said? Yes. It turns out she died last week, just after she had the baby. I felt a sadness made keener by the sunset I drove into, making it hard to keep a straight eye on the road. I didn't know. She gave birth in the spring. A C-section, everyone thought it would take her, but she pulled through. They incubated. She'd only carried for seven months, but while at the hospital, she cut her foot on a doorframe. An infection. MRSA. She paused to find her words. Drug-resistant. She couldn't beat it. Who is the father? Kyle, you remember. I met Ted at book club. He said she attacked him that one time in the classroom. My visit ended up taking four days instead of two. We visited Alice's house. Her mother took me to the baby's crib in a converted guest room. A mobile of airplanes and ringed planets dangled from the headboard that had a carving of seashells. Below it, he was looking up at me, crying and flushed and grasping at the air. He was absolutely perfect. Thank you. Yeah, that, the first time I heard you read that, that final line just left me kind of like, oh, like the, the idea that she made it through her life, she defied all the odds, she had this baby, and the baby was fine and, and, and right, and that's just quite something. <laughs> I think that I, I there were a few moments in it that stood out for me in that section, especially there was the part with uh, where Alice really dismisses Connor, mm. and I found that really heartbreaking because they had this sort of blossoming friendship in the first half, and it was really lovely, and then she just like no wrote him off. Mm. Um, and for me, it was kind of like it, it seemed like it was it was her way of defending herself from emotional pain because she couldn't avoid physical pain. Do you think it's it's fair to make a, a summation like that? Oh yeah, I, I always think that the um, you know, people who have to go through some kind of sickness like that, or uh, people who have some kind of trauma early in life, a lot of the time tend to be a lot. Maybe not more stable emotionally, but certainly stronger emotionally, because after a certain point, you kind of have to harden your heart against too much unhappiness. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, it's partly why I also think women end up maturing a lot faster than men, because women 
especially in their early adolescence, have to go through so much, you know, um, I suppose stress and anxiety about, you know, pregnancy and changes to their body and etc. Whereas men, to quote Dylan Moran, you know, simply have their finger up their nose and just get taller, which is basically how it goes. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I always admire people tremendously who have to go through, you know, sicknesses or something like that, especially early in life to be so blighted so early when, you know, you're supposed to be young and carefree is, uh, it's uh, it's sad, but oddly also, you find the people who, you know, those things happen to also end up being incredibly delightful for some reason a lot of the time. I don't know why. Maybe it's just their early perspective on, you know, the capriciousness of death and the shortness of life or valuing what they have to as early as possible. But yeah, incredibly admirable people a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's that idea of realizing what's important and realizing what's valuable and, you know, being a sort of a kinder, better person, I guess. They realize that gets you further in life and sure. you've only got a limited time. Absolutely. There's also that, that moment in the middle of that, that last section where Connor seems to have a sort of breakdown almost. Mm. Um, and I, I like the way that you've written it leaves it very vague as to why that would happen because everything was set up quite nicely for him and it just happened. Yeah. Is there, I mean, was there ever a temptation to, to write out in detail, like, that process and what happened to the character, or was it always your idea to, to leave it up to their imagination? Uh, in earlier drafts, I did um, actually write out uh, in a bit more detail what happened to Connor. Um, it ended up being, I mean, the story is something like 12 pages long now, but uh, in earlier drafts it was upwards of 19, 20 pages. Um, but there was a point uh, where it started to trail off, I suppose, thematically, and in terms of subject matter, from Alice to Connor. Um, and Which isn't to say that, you know, the story is all about Alice. It, all, it is also Connor's story as well. But... Um, uh, I wanted Alice and her uh, and her struggle to be forefront um, and there were certain periods in earlier drafts where I suppose I got maybe a bit too carried away um, with Connor's side of things um, but uh, and it's a very interesting thing to deal with because Connor, like Alice to a certain extent, because he's keenly aware of Alice's condition, but also his grandmother's condition, um, having to, you know, uh, deal with death, I suppose, at a very early age, um, uh, leaves a lot of perhaps unresolved emotions that linger into adulthood. That, um, was the reason why I, uh, wanted to elaborate a bit more on Connor at first, but I found that I prefer the much the story much more when I tried to leave it a bit ambiguous, but also tried to you know, um, 
imply that as well. Yeah. yeah. I think it works well. I think that you're right. It, it's not either of their stories particularly. It is both. Yeah. And it is that relationship with both that influences each of the characters, mm. which I quite like. And also, I mean, we mentioned before about the idea of writing for, for younger characters. There's some quite adult themes in this story, you know, mm. with religion and complex illnesses, death. Um, and was that... Was there a way that you had to approach it in order to address them sort of sensitively? Mm. You know, I mean, obviously, it's not the audience intended is not for, for children, mm. but was there a way you had to approach it in order to tell that story from a child's perspective? Um, I suppose that, uh, you know, when you're a child, you're not always too keenly aware of the gravity of things that are happening to you all the time. Um, and so writing in a way where, uh, it tried to, um, let, uh, I suppose certain scenes or actions or physical details try to speak for themselves, um, as much as possible rather than elaborating on them too much, uh, is a way of kind of thematically representing that, you know, a child in this situation is not necessarily aware of the immensity of what's happening to them. He only has this little fragment mm. to pay attention to. Um, but it's also an interesting story in that, while it is from a child's perspective, it's also a child's perspective as remembered by someone who's an adult. Yeah. And so uh, there's that extra, like, tension of okay, this is how I remembered it, um, but I'm an adult looking back on you know, emotions felt by a, by a child, and so, yeah, there's, a, there's an extra tension there. Yeah. And I suppose you're, you're allowing the, the reader to put a bit of work in as well, and yeah. sort of work out those things behind the scene, which is quite nice. Yeah, personally, I, um, I always prefer writing that where the reader can... Uh, put in a bit of work and you know bring their own associations and their own experiences to to the language and the story um, I tend to not like too too much writing that tends to towards over elaboration and you know exposition and stuff I, uh, letting things stand for themselves is nice sometimes yeah I agree so this is this is part of your collection which you have now it's you're putting it out into the world mm. is that right out with publishers and various things and looking for the next step for it yeah i'm uh i have them all done i'm just uh putting the finishing touches on them just doing some last minute uh edits before i send them out um i've published a few of them in magazines uh in canada ireland and the uk and um Sending them off to an agent pretty soon. Uh, over the years, I've run into this uh, acquaintance of mine who's a novelist back in Canada. I've seen him sporadically over the years, and every time I see him, he just tells me, yeah, whenever you have something, just send it to me, and I'll send it to my agent. And it's taken me a while, <laughs> but I have something now. So you're there now, and it is quite something. So okay. what's the, beyond that, what's your, what's your next step? more short stories is there is there a novel in there somewhere or mm. what do you think um well to be honest 
you know I keep having ideas for short stories there's um, I've had ideas for novels uh, recently one about um, uh, it was in Cornwall recently uh, visiting a uh, an old mine, mine site that had been closed down where uh, an accident had happened in, I think, 1911. Uh, the steam pump uh, that was used to pump water out of uh, the mine uh, broke and somehow 15 miners drowned underground in this mine. And so... I've been having ideas uh, just to tell that story. Um, obviously, it's something I don't know too, too much about uh, because, you know, Cornwall in the early 20th century mining community, I don't know too, too much about that uh, subject matter, but um, it's just something that's been coming to mind recently. But uh, I'd like to try a novel, but at the moment, it's just short stories. It seems to be my habit. Something yeah. I need to break, maybe. Well, if it's the thing that you, you enjoy writing and you've got good stories to tell, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's that's your thing. Could that's be. That's it. Could be. Yeah. But yeah, I, I want to say a big thank you, Kit, for being here today. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I enjoy that story very much. I look forward to finding it out in the world mm. um, so everyone else can, can share it as well. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. And I want to say a big thank you to Jameson for the Black Barrel. That is a lovely drop as well. It was. Uh, and yeah, so thanks very much. And hopefully everyone out there will see you all again next time. Thanks for having me on. Yeah.